coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Where can you get a vaccination on the long weekend in Hamilton? The sharing of sensitive information between Canada and China. And the tragically hip have new music out that you have never heard before, but from an old friend. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. We'll find out at 3 this afternoon how Ontario reopens. Does this mean I have to go back to school? I'm not even sure I remember how to get there. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah. Kurt walks into the office. Uh, I'm going to have to go back to school. Yes, I have a feeling uh, that we will see the kids squeaked in for the last uh, few weeks of uh, school. Um, why not? Yeah, everything else is uh, sort of opening. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Uh, the hip, uh, surviving members of the hip will release six tracks that didn't make that album. And that will come out on Friday. We're going to have Alan Cross on uh, towards the end of the show, last hour of the show, to talk about that. So great news uh, for hip fans. Great news for fans of vaccine is that more and more keeps coming into the country, which is uh, great news. We're going to talk about that in a sec with Paul Johnson. What's open this weekend as far as clinics and your ability to get vaccinated in the hammer? Let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center, City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, and Road Apples is one of my favorite hip albums, so thanks for that tidbit of information, Scott. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, six new uh, tracks coming out so this Friday. So that should be fascinating. Uh, it should be neat to see. And again, we'll have Alan Cross coming on a little later on to talk about this. So I understand you've got a few kudos of yourself here, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> so I, it seems to be getting out into the public sphere. So <laughs> Yeah, okay. I, I, I will. I, citizen of the Year. Uh, citizen of the uh, citizen of the year ceremony uh, coming up. I, or I, you, you may have to correct me on this. And you and Dr. Elizabeth Richardson have uh, been uh, been honored with this. You, Paul Johnson, director of the emergency uh, center, and of course uh, the head doc in Hamilton, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, receiving uh, these awards. What are your thoughts? Well, it's pretty humbling for a guy who you know just like the T-shirt. Hamilton is home, uh, born, raised, educated in this town, and. And, uh, you know, when I got the, when I got the information that I had been nominated, I was over, over. Is that uh, what it is? Clear, clear this up for us, Paul. So you guys have all been nominated for Citizen of the Year. Is that accurate? Oh, no, it, but it, it is. So Elizabeth and I will be uh, sharing this, this award this year. So I, okay. I knew about the nomination early on and just right. recently found out about the, the result. And there will be a, it'll be part of the Outstanding Business Achievement Awards a piece that's happening through the chamber on June the 1st. And, I got to tell you, it's just hugely humbling. And, and to be honest, I think that uh, both Dr. Richardson and I are, are a proxy for this entire community. Um, everybody's a citizen of the year uh, for, for the, what they've put into this last, uh, this last 12 months. But I got to tell you, it's just, it's, it's hugely humbling and exciting to be recognized as a, as a true Hamiltonian uh, with this award. So I'm, it's, a, it's a big smile day, Scott, big smile days. Did you ever think, when all of this started, well over a year ago, 
that A, we'd be in the position we'd be, and you guys would be honored because this has been so devastating. Well, no, on, on, on both fronts. I mean, I don't think anybody, uh, yes, has pandemic planning always been part of, of ethereal conversations. And sure, we lived through SARS and H1N1, but I don't think anybody felt that there would be anything like, um, you know, this coronavirus piece that we've lived through and the impact that it would have. And then, you know, and secondly, you know, I, I just, you don't think about these things as you go through about awards and, and, but it is very humbling to hear what people say about you. And, and, and if at least half of it's true, I'm a, I'm a very happy guy. If people obviously feel there, there's some merit in this. And, and as I say, you know, it's just, I've enjoyed getting up uh, every day and doing what I can to help this community. And, and uh, we all feel the pain and all feel the, you know, what's happening. And we all experience it in different ways. But, um, you know, for Dr. Richardson and I, this is just a, get up every day and serve kind of mentality and we've we've done the very best we can and uh, what an honor to be recognized for that well you are humble but congratulations to you honestly well deserved for you and dr richardson so uh i i think there's a lot of cheers going on in hamilton right now so congratulations uh to you both all right let's talk about where we are a slight increase in numbers today every you know everybody's quite excited earlier in the week because we were down below 2000 we've now creeped up crept up above uh 2000 does that concern you uh, no, because a bit like the stock market, if you look at it every day, you're going to go insane. Uh, you really need to look at it over time. And right now we still can see uh, good trends, which is the overall numbers. When you look at a seven day rolling average are headed in the right direction. Will we have days where it's up and down? Of course we will. And, and we'll have those for a while. The goal here is just to keep driving that number down and down and to think that it would drop from 2200 to 1600 to 1000 to 500 to 200. I mean, that's just not possible. We're, yeah. we're still dealing with lots of outbreaks and, and lots of cases in our community. But the overall good news is that the trend is considered to be, it's not considered is that's still a downward trend, uh, but we've got a little bit of uh, these blips that are happening. And this is the message we're in, uh, or this is the uh, message we're trying to share right now, is that we can't, we can't give up on these measures quite yet uh, because we still are seeing case numbers that are too high, whether it's in Hamilton today, over 140, uh, provincially back up to that 2,400 mark or so. Uh, we have to hold on for a bit, but the other good news is is that you see vaccine rates continuing to grow and grow and grow. We're over 51% in the city of Hamilton. Like We're getting there on that track as well. So the two are going to converge at some point in the near future, Scott, where vaccine rates will get up to a level that is uh, really doing us well, and our case numbers will come down to a level where we can start to uh, to reopen activities in our communities, and we're going to hear more about that from the Premier this afternoon. And, of course, that, that's a huge milestone to hit Hamilton, over 50% of uh, those eligible to be vaccinated. That's a huge kudos for Hamilton as well. So uh, congratulations there to all involved. Um, what about um, uh, hospitals and hospital capacity? Are we still seeing good news there? Uh, we are, again, uh, a slow and steady uh, retreat of numbers, uh, both uh, overall numbers uh, and and particularly the numbers in ICU, still way too high, uh, still, you know, higher than we need them to be. But the good news is, is that it's on that downward trend. And again, evidence of that is that uh, you saw the uh, the provincial government um, uh, rescind an order that had sort of stopped 
some of these uh, other uh, other activities that hospitals would uh, would do and saying to hospitals when the time is right you can start to to do some more of these uh, these treatments and more of the service that uh, that they need to provide for a whole bunch of other illnesses and we can get back to start to slowly in- reintroduce those so again uh, when I look at the underlying pieces to all of this, it's very positive, but this is positive over a number of weeks and, and probably over a few months. This isn't positive as in it's going to change by the weekend. All right. Many people anticipating, eagerly anticipating this news conference from the premier coming up at three o'clock this afternoon. I think this is probably the most anticipated news conference of this entire <laughs> pandemic. People are like standing at their front doors with their bathing suits in their hand. It's hilarious. Um, so uh, uh, anything you can tell us, any inside info you have, Paul, on what's going to happen at three o'clock? Well, you know, I probably really would be citizen of the year if I was actually that embedded in the decision-making yeah. tree, and I, I'm not. Um, you know, I think that uh, that what we've been hearing and, and certainly what the media is reporting today and, and, quite frankly, the minister and the premier were saying yesterday and the day before is that, you know, it's time to start looking at how we uh, allow certain activities to begin and how we start to think about reopening in a different way um, because the vaccine rollout has changed very dramatically. I think a year ago, it was all about, you know, what could we open? And then we'd have to pull back because it was always this, we didn't have a vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> so you, your, your cases were always, it was just about how do we try and manage case counts and all the rest. Now you've got this vaccine out there. So it's a very different approach. Uh, I think they're, they're taking the right idea, which is let's look at those, those, the ways we can open parts of the economy and certain things will open faster, things that, that are lower risk and, and certainly outdoor activities fit that bill. They're going to open faster. That's, uh, that's no surprise and, and probably you don't need to be part of the science table to figure that out. The tougher part will be how we you know, get back to more of those indoor activities and that will be, I think, a little bit longer. And then, of course, the big question is gathering sizes, both indoors and outdoors. How will we allow some connection with uh, with people that aren't in our own household but do that again in a way that's safe and and uh, so i you know we're going to hear apparently that uh, you know what the time frames look like for that and i think the other piece that people are are hopeful for is that there there could be something on outdoor recreation as soon as uh, you know for this weekend and we'll see about that again i i don't have any insider information about whether that's a yes or a no but uh, i think you know where we are and the trends we're looking at I think people can expect some of these activities to come online sooner rather than later because we're in a much better place than we were in early April when all of this kicked off. And, you know, as well, as you mentioned, uh, the difference between the, this and the first and the second waves at this time where there's vaccine here. So that's obviously, uh, you know, provides a different uh, set of criteria. And and as you mentioned, it looks uh, obviously they've they've gotten rid of the color coded system and the regional uh, idea because we, we, we saw what happened when that uh, when that occurred. We'd see one region close down and then them just jumping to another region or, or situations, examples of that. Instead, this is, as you mentioned, more. More sector uh, driven than regional uh, driven, so th- this is going to look quite a bit different than the other two waves. It, it is, and it's it's really going to look at risk profiles with the type of activity rather than worrying about uh, you know the risk profiles of a certain geography. You know, for most of Ontario, the reality is is that there's a lot of movement between regions, and we we have that for work as well as leisure. So you know to you know, to say that it's always got to be this region by region approach. At some point, you have to go away from that and say that 
that these are activities that, are, that carry low risk, no matter where you are in the province, and these things are, are the ones that carry higher risk, to which we probably need to be protecting the province from this, uh, you know, for all over the province. And, and so I think, you know, I, I personally, I mean, they don't ask me my opinion, but personally, I think this is a great approach, and it will give some clarity to those sectors as well as to what they can expect. So what can people in a certain sector be doing in June and July and into the summer? Uh, and, you know, it won't it won't be pleasure for everybody because the, the reality is we don't have enough of a percentage of folks vaccinated yet. And then, the, you know, the other piece is we have to have to have to guard against a fourth wave uh, to go through this again, mm. where we would have to do a large scale closure. Uh, you know, I just I don't know how we would be able to get through it, quite frankly, from a. A, a psyche perspective and from a human resource perspective within some of the healthcare systems and others. So we just have to be very cautious that we don't do stuff too fast because um, that will lead us down the path we had uh, into March and April, where we, we eventually, of course, had to have the province come in and, and uh, close everything down. All right. So uh, obviously uh, the vaccine clinics are going to keep rocking right the way through the long weekend in the hammer. Uh, Where can we get a vaccine uh, through the long weekend? A number of places. And what's really exciting is, you you know, our team is being very flexible. So we've got, uh, you know, some some additional doses of uh, Moderna uh, running a special clinic, a pop up clinic this weekend at the West End Urgent Care Center. Uh, out in West Hamilton, Westdale area, and uh, it runs the 22nd to the 24th. Uh, so over this uh, long weekend and into next week, and uh, you know, again, another opportunity for people to get uh, to get vaccinated. And so this is what's happening now: is the supplies start to increase, or we get a little bit extra that we weren't anticipating in a week. That we're finding ways to get that into people's arms. So again, uh, go to the website Hamilton.ca. Um, uh, and 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 get to our coronavirus uh, COVID-19 web pages. Find out where all those locations are. The booking tool is the best way to do it online. If you can't, our hotline will be there for people. But yeah, an added one. There's other pop-ups that continue to go, and then of course our three mass vaccination sites continue to just uh, churn right along. So goal is to get as much into arms as possible. And the great news is is that we see a steady increase of supply starting to happen and then when we get some of these extras our team is ready to uh, get get something together can't say enough about the working relationship with hamilton health sciences and our public health uh, unit to make this thing happen for this weekend so we can get more uh, shots in more people's arms quickly uh I, i'm almost hesitant to bring this up paul simply because i don't want to put bad ideas into people's minds but i, I think it's something we have to address uh dr richardson uh said this week that uh, there were examples of people showing up to clinics and when they found out it was moderna and not uh pfizer they walked away and i was talking to uh dr Furness about this who's one of the many doctors we see on various uh, news programs and such and he had never even heard of this and 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 again echoed how ridiculous it was considering these are both the exact same type of vaccine these are the uh, mrna vaccines it's not like comparing them to uh, the, the traditional vaccines like J&J and even AstraZeneca. So uh, your thoughts on that and, 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 and what message can you give to people who are splitting this hair, which seems absolute, absolutely ridiculous? Well, you know, it's, it's problematic. First of all, you know, all the evidence is uh, these are all very good vaccines, and that includes AstraZeneca. 
And yes, there's been a pause, but it's not a pause because all of a sudden the belief is it has no value as a vaccine. The pause is to make sure that the uh, the, the information and the guidance around uh, first dose and second dose and ages and all the rest is appropriate. But never once has the information been we're pulling it because we think it's a terrible vaccine. So I listen yeah. very carefully, personally and professionally to the experts, and it's been very clear these vaccines are, are, are effective uh, and people should not be concerned and this vaccine shopping does two things. One is it delays that person from getting a vaccine if they cancel at the last minute and then want to rebook, but it also creates a hole that we then yeah. have to fill and somebody else is not provided the opportunity to make that happen. So I you know, really encourage people, again, do your research, look at it. I just can find nothing online that says to people, uh, you know, from credible sources that says to people, hey, make sure you phone in advance and if it's Moderna, run the other way. There's just, you know, if you can point me to the page, Scott, of repute that says that, uh, I'll, I'll be found wrong. But nothing says that, you know, federally, provincially, locally, all of the experts are saying these vaccines that are available to you are safe and they are effective and um, they continue to be monitored for sure. So they continue to be safe and effective. But, yeah, please, you know, just come to your appointment. And these vaccines are all very, very, very strong. And Dr. Richardson addressed that the other day as well. I'm really saying to folks, there is no reason why you should be holding out for one over the other. Uh, it's like comparing a Lincoln to a Cadillac. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's both nice yeah, vehicles. And, Come on. And, and kind of worse than that, saying, well, you're going to be selfishly keeping everybody else from having the choice there because that slot yeah. is very important to someone else. And so if it was a purely personal one where it didn't matter what you did as an individual, fine. But every time you book a slot, it's some it's a slot that someone else can't book. And there are people that really need this vaccine, want it. Uh, because of what they do and where they work and their their situation and are not in any way worried about it because they've done the research and the understanding around it. And so it has that double effect, Scott, of, of being a bit disappointing from a, that person's decision. But also the, the reality is that, uh, you know, now we have to find somebody to fill that slot on very short notice because we don't want to waste vaccine. Uh, obviously, this afternoon, uh, a news conference, 3 o'clock. We'll be covering that live, announcing uh, how Ontario does reopen. Uh, as we mentioned earlier on, people are standing at the front door with their golf clubs or their bathing suit or whatever <laughs> in their hand, uh, ready to peel out. But as everybody has stressed, this will be a slow rollout, and the protocol still has to be adhered to. So what advice do you have for people this long weekend as uh, they get a little anxious and uh, things start to, to loosen up a bit? So the real piece is let's not have this long weekend turn into one of those events, the Easter's, the the, uh, yeah. the holidays in December, those types of, of events where too many people were getting together and we had some of that spread happen. Um, so really there, uh, you know, no indoor outdoor gatherings without people who are in your immediate household. That's the, the piece. If there is a relaxation on some of those outdoor activities, go and enjoy them safely and and by all means uh, you know uh, have that uh, that joyous moment whether you've got your tennis racket under your arm your golf clubs over your shoulder your basketball uh, bouncing in front of you whatever it is go out and enjoy them if they are allowed to be open and the last thing I'll say just about our incredible team here at the city is we're ready uh, and the moment uh, an announcement is made whenever that time comes to open these amenities uh, they'll be open immediately and for those who use the escarpment stairs, uh, the escarpment stairs would be part of that. When the announcement's made, when they open tennis courts and basketball courts and those things, we'll also open our escarpment stairs. 
So, you know, you bring up a very valid point here, Paul, and something that I, I had forgotten, but every single and before, every single long weekend, every health official, leader, person as yourself would say, you know what happens after a long weekend? Two weeks after a long weekend, we see a surge in cases because of people gathering. Uh, again, that another long weekend coming up this long weekend. How concerned are you of that? Uh, always concerned because, you know, certainly as we get to the end to people, uh, you know, we can't, we can't conflate the fact that certain things may become available with all the restrictions have lifted. So the restrictions that remain in place, please adhere to them uh, to the strictest way. And some of those big things are, you know, avoiding uh, indoor contact with those who aren't part of your household. And, and certainly if there is uh, minimal contact with somebody, it has to be in a very safe way. Uh, those are the things we have to definitely avoid. And that doesn't change through this weekend. We've been hearing it from everybody all, all week long. Uh, so again, do the things you can do safely. And, and the other piece is continue to follow the good, simple measures that we've been in place for over 14 months. And that's, uh, you know, wash your hands, avoid contact with your face, keep your distance. And of course, the latest one that has been added on now for many, many months, which is wear your mask when you've when you're uh, in certain environments where you can't keep that distance. If we do that, we're going to keep safe. Uh, heck, we can all f- cross our fingers. I have my fingers crossed this afternoon that more things will open for this weekend because I need as much optimism in my life as everyone else. I'm tired of saying no, Scott. <laughs> it would be nice yeah, yeah, really. to say, uh, yes, it would be nice to tell our folks not to lock things up and tape them off, but to actually say, cut down that tape, open the locks, uh, let's have people enjoy. Uh, we didn't build all these outdoor amenities for recreation for people not to enjoy them. And we really want to see that happen. And, and let's uh, start to slowly do it. But it's all going to be about moderation and a and a steady build up to when we can be doing more of the things that we want to do. And again, I would ask people to celebrate the things that we are going to be able to do um, along the way rather than trying to find ways around it and doing the things we're not supposed to do quite yet. All things will come eventually, but it's going to be a phased approach for sure. And uh, let's just keep as safe as we can over these last few months. No fourth wave. That's our goal. Paul Johnson with us, director of the emergency table, city of Hamilton, who, along with Hamilton's top doc, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, celebrating Citizen of the Year awards and well-deserved. Congratulations, Paul. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. Oh, time for commentary. In the year and a bit that has been this global pandemic, many have been complaining about constantly changing information. Hey, welcome to the world of a global disaster. This is not to be confused with mixed messaging, which is when two different bodies give conflicting information about the exact same issue. For example, NASI and Health Canada's review on AstraZeneca and the chaos it created is a good example of mixed messaging. This isn't that, but another example of how the information is constantly being updated simply because we're in the throes of a global pandemic like the world has never experienced and the data is constantly changing. Here's the latest. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine can now be stored at normal refrigerator temperatures for up to 31 days, says Health Canada. You can just imagine how that would have changed the initial rollout process months ago, considering all of the deep freeze logistics that had to be made to accommodate this vaccine, which was initially to be stored at down to minus 80. This is great news. Here's hoping NASI will craft a responsible message before weighing in on this. I'm Scott Thompson. 
Drive. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Sorry, Will, I'm adjusting my uh, knobs here because I think I've... I fudged with something, so hopefully you can keep us on track back at your end. All right, uh, sorry. Are, are we on? I didn't... <laughs> yes. Production live. Uh, the intercom that Will and I use to talk to each other is the same one you and I are using to talk to each other. Hey, Will, am I loud enough? Turn that up. Turn that down. Turn that off. Your intercom is stuck. Okay. Some of the, uh, some of the <laughs> off-air stuff that is now on air as we uh, enjoy the Scott Thompson Home Show. Where the heck am I? Uh, I'm at home. I know that. Uh, oh, it's uh, going to bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. We're going to talk about China. Uh, lots of action going on uh, in that part of the world that uh, we are always curious of, uh, including a, a recent article in the Globe and Mail, uh, infectious disease scientists at Canada's high-security lab uh, collaborated with China and where does that information end up? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you, Scott. Same to you. So, obviously, Elliot, we've heard lots of chatter of late about uh, information sharing and, and where that information ends up and, and does it end up in the wrong hands uh, once it is in China. Um, why, why are you concerned about this? Uh, and is this about, why are we studying this? Is this about studying and learning more about these pathogens? Is this about biowarfare? Uh, why are these even, why are these exchanges even going on? Yes. Well, several things there. And I, I guess my, my first comment is that global cooperation on a whole range of things uh, really is a good thing. We, we better have a global response and a lot of in-depth background on, you know, by researchers around the world on some of the key issues that are facing us. That would include climate, and it certainly would include uh, infectious diseases now. The uh, second thing I would say is that the cooperation with China should not come as a surprise. It's part of that global cooperation. But we are learning a lot more in recent times about what this China in front of us is about. It's a, it's, we, we, the word naive is being used uh, loosely right now, broadly, but the fact is that China has really come into focus in a different way than we thought when these kind of exchanges were, were set up. And remember, we have Confucius Institutes around Canada, various universities, so that's close to my own bailiwick. A lot of cooperation was considered a good thing, not a bad thing, and China is a primary source of uh, our international students that so you know that come to our campuses, and that's I've, I've always thought was a really good thing. But now we're coming to uh, we're now at day number eight hundred and ninety-two mm. of the two Michaels being in Chinese prisons on everybody's uh, you know quite bogus charges related to the fact that Meng Wanzhou has been arrested in Canada and is living in her mansions while she awaits extradition hearings, which are still going ahead, but not going to go ahead now until August. So that's going, that saga goes on. But the point is that China is coming into focus in a far different way today than we saw them not long ago. So the origin of that cooperation agreement comes out of an era when cooperation was seen, I think for very good reasons, and it's not just with China, but around the world, but now we're looking at China. So I think the uh, the cooperation agreement made a lot of sense at the time, but now we're seeing a lot more about uh, 
the nature of today's China, and it has led to scientists, and as that, that story covers, uh, scientists who have connections to China being relieved of their security clearances and marched off the premises. When does this become a bad thing? Uh, when does it become, when are we concerned about the exchange of this information? Yeah, again, I've got a couple of responses to that. The first is the, the actual security implications. You know, our intelligence services are are there to, to tell us <laughs> when, to answer the question you just asked, when is it a good thing, when is it a bad thing? We've, we've got to, and sometimes economic and political concerns then wash over, you know, sure, we heard from security people, but we've got economic relations and we've got, you know, political relations. We've, so higher priority is given to other than the, the initial intelligence. But the intelligence services are there, plus, you know, we're part of Five Eyes, so we're, we're not alone in gathering information about what kind of regime this in, is. And they are... And they are showing themselves what kind of regime they, they are by the arrest of the two Michaels, but also Canadian journalists are doing a, a real job on China. So, you know, the claws of the panda. Now there's a new book coming out tomorrow, I believe, talking about the relationship. I don't want to promote this because I, I don't know the background of it, but a lot of concern about intelligence services and criminal gangs and state agents. When it becomes a concern is, and this is my first part of the answer, is our intelligence services and others will tell us, we hope, that what we thought was a good thing is a bad thing. The second part of this, however, I want to emphasize. I'm concerned that anti-Asian hate groups have been, you know, hate incidents have been on the rise. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want to see our concern increasingly becoming more relevant and visible over what China is up to to translate into domestic concerns over who's in front of us, uh, you know, this Wuhan virus and all that. Uh, Chinese hate, anti-Asian hate is on the increase in Canada, and we do not want our concern over the rise of China and how it behaves to translate into, you know, this kind of domestic situation of hate uh, being targeted against people of Asian background. And again, we like to emphasize this is not about Chinese Canadians. This is about the Chinese Communist Party and their actions of late. So the sharing of this info, Elliot, is this about research uh, and uh, development uh, of a vaccine and such that will help us treat these infectious diseases? Is this about researching infectious diseases or is this about biowarfare? Well, we want the, we want the first. We fear the second. And that's that's our uh, and precisely put. The situation is, you know, SARS came out of that area. Uh, swine flu has been an, so we need global cooperation on what to do about global pandemics, and that kind of cooperation requires, you know, a lot of global uh, global agreements and global uh, actual testing together and sharing of information. If it can then be, and that's the concern raised in the article you mentioned, if that can be taken into military uh, confines, and then what particular concern in this case was they would re-engineer the pathogens that are being worked on in terms of vaccines into something that is something quite different, and that something quite different would be used for biological warfare purposes. China, of course, is not the only one, uh, the only state that... We have to be concerned about all major states, I think, have 
probably exper experimented with bioweapons, and we actually have conventions about that. There's, there's international conventions over the development and deployment of chemical weapons. I, we're very concerned, for example, about North Korea, which, apart from its nuclear capacity, and North Korea, that opens up another conversation, uh, North Korea uh, apparently has a very deep stock of chemical and biological weapons as well. You know, our own departments of foreign affairs, or whatever we're currently calling it, GAC today, uh, has a whole division devoted to bioweapons and non-conventional weapons of warfare. We've heard the phrase many times, uh, China will win World War III without firing a shot. Um, uh, and, and I think what I found disturbing in this piece in the Globe and Mail was they were suggesting that China was or had the possibility or the connections to create such pathogens only to come in with the life-saving vaccine that would help us and save us all. Uh, is that fiction? Is that fact? Heroic rescue. <laughs> yeah. That's the term. Uh, would they... Would they release something and then come to come to the rescue of states that have it? I think really there's a, a subtle difference in the article about that. One is they might be developing weapons based on research meant for medicine, medicinal pandemic purposes, and the other is that they they may find a way to uh, not necessarily release these things, but then to say we have such deep knowledge of all these things based on our research uh, and. and, and we should hesitate here and say that intellectual theft is one of the uh, big charges facing China in all kinds of ways. This is one other, another example of the concern over intellectual yeah. theft, theft of intellectual property, in this case, very deadly or life-saving. So the possibility that they could, they could do that, that's, that's certainly a possibility. We have a much more real situation now where, in fact, China is using vaccine diplomacy going particularly to Africa, where they've mm -hmm. locked up research contracts for a long term, saying we, we also have, it's not just Pfizer, it's not just Johnson & Johnson. Uh, both China and Russia have developed their own vaccines, and they're going around Africa right now in particular and saying, here, we're here to help you, here's our vaccines, and nobody else is helping you, and you'll have to remember that as time goes by. Uh, any reason to expect bio warfare here? It, is the, it, it almost seems uh, like old school. Uh, are you surprised we're talking about this? No, I'm. I'm worried we're talking about it. And along yeah. with that, uh, the term cyber warfare has been entering much more prominently. But uh, yes, it's old-fashioned to talk about this. Remember, mustard gas was used extensively in the First World War. And then well, the even when we were talking about uh, Russians poisoning spies and such, it seemed yeah, like something so, out of the old I, days. I was going to move forward. So, yeah, so we, we have conventions based on the original use of chemical warfare. Then a lot of things were developed as part of the Second World War, and one of those apparently shows up with Russia using, you know, Novichok in, in, in a NATO allies, you know, the U.K. is one of our allies, but also a NATO ally in terms of poisoning of opponents. Uh, there was also just use of radioactive material, the Linfenenko case. So the possibility that state agents, either directly or indirectly, will deploy uh, chemical or biological aspects of warfare in peacetime around the world in peacetime is there. But, of course, uh, more massively, we have the case of situation in Syria where 
chemical warfare was used during a civil war against civilian populations. It's a, it, we have not solved the question about what to do about chemical and biological warfare. We are working on it. And this kind of story kind of brings it back from the back burner to the front burner. It, it's an issue. I know you wanted to touch on South Korean President Moon being in the United States. What uh, significance of that? Well, first of all, it's it's one of the first visits of, <laughs> that Joe Biden is receiving. Uh, he's not been taking a lot of foreign visitors. So the fact that it's South Korea is important in and of itself. And, of course, we're talking about China because South Korea has to deal with North Korea. North Korea is really a, a protectorate of China. What China chooses to do or not to do about North Korea has a lot to do with the fate of the world because China, uh, in a sense, wants to preserve the regime, even though the regime now has gone nuclear in a big way. But, of course, they also do have, as we discussed, chemical and biological warfare. So one of the topics that is going to be on the agenda for uh, the Biden-President Moon um, summit. He's there for five days, by the way. It's, a, it's an unusually mm. long visit from a foreign visitor in his final year in office. But they, they have a whole long laundry list. But one of those is going to be China, I'm sorry, U.S., Japan, South Korea cooperation in facing, in facing China. And of course, the, unfortunately, the situation right now between China and South Korea is fraught. So here's the U.S. trying to find a way to square that circle. How does China feel about this visit? Yeah. Well, I haven't heard. <laughs> I suspect they, they would consider it normal, and they will monitor it very, very closely to see if uh, what, what kinds of military and security, more broadly security uh, announcements come out of it. The U.S. has just finished a North Korean review, review of North Korean policy. Uh, it hasn't been fully released, I don't think, but we, we get a lot of hints about it. The U.S. really wants to maintain the agreement between the U.S. and North Korea that was reached under Trump in Singapore, which, of course, nobody followed through on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, so what to do about a North Korea that's nuclear-armed and has delivery capacity is, is a big-ticket item. China is clearly a factor in that. They're, they still share something called the six-party talks, and they're not delivering. They are not delivering on what a big power should be doing, and they are um, behaving in ways that make us question if this is, a, this is a country that says, and they have the ability that, you know, the West is declining, the East is rising, that China is going to be the foremost country in the world by 2050, and by 2030 it's going to be a central power and so forth. Uh, they're, they're not behaving in a way, and here's a, here's a way to test it, uh, like a great power. You know, they're not, they're not uh, ready for prime time if... Mm. if uh, they allow a North Korea to behave the way it has if they are engaged in the kinds of, if, and that's a big if, the kind of security concerns over biological and chemical weapons that those headlines suggest. Uh, what about uh, U.S. warship patrols in the South China Sea? That's making headlines this week. Yeah, it's too little too late. Everybody took their eye off the ball. China moved into clearly not their traditional territory. They found the background on this is they found an old map that had nine dashes on it, as they call it, showing that those dashes, everything inside those dashes is Chinese, and that includes mm -hmm. basically the entire South China Sea. Uh, Taiwan, by the way, has 11 dashes for the same thing. But no, they've never been a sea power. They've never really 
that's never really been traditionally their territory. And there's a lot of other countries there that say no, you know, particularly the Philippines and Vietnam. There's overlapping claims there. Um, so now the U.S. is, particularly with the 7th Fleet, is having these freedom of navigation operations. And they just keep sailing through because this is open seas in terms of the world. This is territorial water in terms of China. The U.S. is saying we aren't going to follow that. We're not going to go along with it. This is free and open. And Japan is leading a, uh, an initiative called the Free and Ocean, uh, Open Indo-Pacific. Uh, China uh, is watching that closely. That's a, an India-Japan relationship. There's something called the Quad there, by the way. And there's, will South Korea join that? So there's a lot of activity now, I think very belatedly, in dealing with the a fact that we have an assertive China that is laying claim. By the way, Canada is playing a, a role there. We have a frigate called, interestingly enough, the Ottawa, uh, HMS, uh, CS, uh, Ottawa, which has gone through that Strait of Taiwan twice last year, and then they were trailed, followed by Chinese military vessels uh, as they go through what we consider to be uh, you know, open water and China considers to be territorial water. This is a, a global hotspot on the sea, and Canada, uh, we twice last year and then once this year. So I think the fact that Taiwan is back on the agenda is something we all need to keep an eye on. Uh, Taiwan considers this maybe on their yet-to-do list. Uh, I shouldn't say China. Xi Jinping hmm. has really asserted China in a way that is surprising to the world. And so coming back to where we started, China is an existing power. It's the second largest, maybe the largest economy in the world. It has a great deal of interaction with the world in many, many ways, a lot to offer, but it has to behave in a way, it has to behave in a way that says that they are responsible international uh, citizens and potential global leaders. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University, talking about all things China, whether it is infectious diseases or warships going up and down the South China Sea. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Uh, same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, fascinating article in uh, in the Driving uh, Magazine this uh, this uh, edition, and and in regard to electric vehicles, obviously lots of chatter around electric vehicles, uh, especially recently with uh, the announcement of two uh, new plants that are opening up in Ontario that will be geared specifically towards uh, electric vehicles, and the biggest challenge always has been or has been to date is how much are the distance that you get out of a charge and then how do you charge the uh, the vehicle quickly uh, well here's a completely different approach on how uh, wireless EV charging could actually be built into roads uh, fascinating uh, fascinating uh, concept and sure, certainly would turn the discussion uh, in a completely different direction let's bring in Alexander Malavanov a PhD candidate with the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering University of Toronto and is with us now Alexander uh, thanks for the time I hope you're doing well I'm doing good 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 afternoon Scott so some of the biggest challenges still with electric vehicles, and correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously the distance that you can get on a charge and the speed and how you get that vehicle uh, charged, is that still the main issues with EVs moving forward? That, that, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a couple of issues that we need to solve. That's one of the main issues indeed. Um, it's, it's the electric driving range. 
And uh, this issue has been uh, has created something that we've called in the field the range anxiety, the fact that people may fear that they may not be able to use their car the same way they've been using it or they've not been able to go to work or, or to do the same activities because they buy electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some truth to it, but it's uh, sometimes an anxiety that has been uh, over um, emphasize, I think, for the past few years. And what what you're talking about is actually having the vehicle charge with uh, by by simply driving on the roadway. Uh, in in layperson's terms, what are you working on here? Explain this. Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the traditional charging scheme, right, is um, you you charge at home or at work. And, um, and in between, you need to have the driving range to be able to move right between those two um, points. And um, the, 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 the recent innovations are suggesting to put those charging um, stations or, I mean, those wireless charging on the roads. Um, and I think this is exciting, uh, but um, I don't think we actually need that um, to, re- to really solve the, um, the, the challenge of electrif- electrification. Because let's face it, actually, the vast majority of the people um, can fulfill their travel needs with the current um, electric vehicle models. Um, if you buy a Tesla or a Nissan Leaf or you know, many of the electric vehicles that you have right now, you have hundreds of, of kilometers of, of, of driving ranges. And let's face it, most of us don't need or don't drive that much per day. So that's why this range anxiety has been a little bit overemphasized because uh, the vast majority of the people actually only need uh, less than 100 kilometers per day. Uh, so th- that becomes important when we go further away and that in that in that case i think some solutions uh wireless charging or i mean just fast chargers actually uh, are a great solution uh so obviously that would lead you know with this anxiety around distance and as you mentioned the average journey really you know we're well within that already in the range of of electric vehicles but that anxiety still is there is that due to the lack of charging stations we know there's gas stations all over the place so if we run out we can we can fuel up uh is it about having a lack of facilities to charge these things Uh, more of that and less about the distance Yes, this is this is actually very correct, right? I mean, uh, if you think about it, if tomorrow, <coughs> I apologize, I will have to buy an electric vehicle, then I would have to invest in a in a charger infrastructure, and so I would have to you know install something at home, and it's just also a different mindset, right? Because right now we we have our cars in our garage, and we you know we 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 fill the tank a couple of times. Uh, I'll say, I mean, depending on how much you travel, but a week or a month, and I feel that this cultural shift may not be that difficult to do. It's just, you know, public awareness and uh, making sure that people can know that um, it's actually quite easy to install a, a charger at home. And, and now in big cities, we have many, many chargers that are being installed. And the good news is the government is actually pushing uh, hard on this. And now you have you have ways to rebate in order to to have uh, cheaper chargers. Uh, the government is trying to install many, many public chargers. So I think in the years ahead, uh, people will start realizing that they can actually, you know, own a vehicle, an electric vehicle, and then actually charge it a little bit everywhere. And 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 they will realize that this range anxiety uh, is not much an anxiety. It will become um, just, you know, the new normal of driving an electric vehicle. So if we can charge in the journey, then obviously the distance issue is is something less to be anxious about. Yes. Um, it is true, uh, but but I can see. So there, I think there is an important thing that we need to understand is 
Um, electric vehicles, when they charge, right, they use electricity. And so we are creating an interaction between the transport sector and the electricity sector that, that has never existed before. And so there's many people that are expecting the chargers to actually help the grid to stabilize if we have some regulated charging. So uh, we call that very often smart charging, meaning that if you uh, only charge at home, for example, and when you plug your electric vehicles with a smart charger, the charger will be able to say when the vehicle uses electricity or when the vehicle can actually functions as a battery. And battery are very interesting for grids because they actually help stabilizing the grid and they can actually help the grid operations. But so the other way, so I mean, to finish my thought, if yep. your electric vehicle is charging randomly in different places with no interactions, with no, um, you know, synchronization, then it becomes a load to the grid system that is actually challenging to operate. So mm. overall, my concern is, you know, if, if everybody can charge their vehicles in the highways or a little bit everywhere without any synchronizations, uh, and if everybody does it, you know, millions of vehicles at a time, that actually create a very important challenge. Uh, for the power sector, that is definitely solvable. It's not a uh, very, I mean, it's a, it's a critical issue, uh, but that's one important drawback that I see from those wireless charging. And also the fact that wireless charging is actually more energy, uh, um, requires more energy for the same charge. So it actually means that we need more electricity for the same charge, which is another chance we need to solve. So uh, that's an interesting uh, aspect to all of this. So explain this. So this is basically having charging plates in a roadway, embedded in a roadway. Explain how this works. Yeah. Um, so um, this is pretty much, I think people are, are quite used to it if they, if they have bought uh, recent smartphones. Uh, wireless, uh, wireless chargings are, are, are calls that charge mm -hmm. the um, uh, the. Uh, and, a battery uh, with a, a magnetic field. Um, and so, you know, you just put, when you have an iPhone, you just put your, I mean, a phone more generally uh, with the wireless charging um, possibility, you just put your phone on this uh, uh, dock, wireless dock, and then, you know, it just charges. It's pretty much the right. same as before, but instead of plugging um, something into your phone, you just put it. Um, and and here it's the same. So there are some innovations where they're suggesting to do the same on highways. So basically one line of the highway will become this, a docking a wireless charging system. And then if you drive on this on this lane, then you'll be able to charge your vehicle. Uh, it's pretty much a dream of EV enthusiasts coming true. Um, but as I said before, I think there's some challenges to it. And I think there are currently technical challenges. Uh, road maintenance um, will be way more expensive, so this is another aspect to it. Um, I, don't, I don't see that as a very large scale solutions, honestly. That may be very useful for long haul trucks that may be useful for some types of trips. Um, but I really believe that we have right now everything in, um, in our uh, technology portfolio to actually make the EV revolution happen without those, um, you know, exciting innovation that may sound um, like we're living uh, in, a, in a futuristic movie. Uh, but it, they will take years to, to, you know, be implemented. They will take years to be, to be developed. And we haven't, we have never installed it at large scale. And that's also a very important issue when we, you know, scaled up the technologies. So, so you don't see this as a solution in the near future? No, 
not a solution in the near future. It might be an exciting solution for the long term. It might be a solution for some cities, might be a solution for some parking spaces. It might be a solution for you know, marginal situations, some conditions, some specific situations. But we have right now, uh, the government more importantly, uh, have the solutions right now for electric vehicles because the technologies have been maturing and, and, and it's, it's a matter of making it cheaper uh, so that it's accessible. And it's a matter of subsidizing public chargers, private chargers. It's a, it's a matter of making it, you know, in the agenda. And I think it's the case. Um, and, and that, and that, that, that will work. And we will have the EV revolution without thinking about those very futuristic innovations, which, you know, may work and, and will potentially work, but I, I don't think it will be those large scale innovations we may, we may expect. Um, uh, with this sort of theory of, of, of wireless charging, uh, obviously this is still a ways down the road. Is battery technology still the biggest challenge at this point? Um, yes, definitely part of the challenge uh, because of the prices and the vast, I mean, a big chunk uh, of um, an, an electric vehicle cost is because of the battery. And so um, the technology itself detects the price. Um, but there is also a chicken egg problem. Like the more we uh, produce the batteries, the better we, we become at producing them. Um, and l- large scale productions also bring large scale, um, you know, reductions in terms of costs. So and, it means that, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say um, uh, the issue with this sort of wireless charging is that it does put a greater strain on the grid. It takes more power to charge this way. Is that accurate? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's fully accurate. Um, I was looking at this morning, even though it may, it may vary, but I found some studies who've estimated that wireless charging for phones, if you don't put your phone exactly in the same you know, place mm-hmm. and because of heating losses and because of all the reasons, wireless charging for phones can take up to 50, uh, basically 50% more energy per charge than just a normal charge. So, I mean, 50% higher energy electricity per charge, that, that's huge. Uh, and electric vehicles already have an important load when they charge. And if that's the case, if you know electric vehicles start using you know fifty percent higher electricity for the same charge because we have so much losses, yeah. I mean, let's face it; it will create so many issues. Knowing that we have all the solutions, you know, it's definitely not. Uh, we don't. I mean, I'll, I'm not going to say we don't need them because you know that may be part of the solutions, but. That's really not a requirement. We have so many other uh, solutions to get the revolution we need. And your example of the smartphone and putting it on a charging talk, that's that's a great analogy of all of this. Um, as you mentioned... Yeah, it's it's uh, a moving high- phone, right? Yeah, so it's absolutely. It's more complex. It's a moving phone on a dock, which you know adds some technical complexity to it. Wow, that's incredible when you think about it. Um, with the standard uh, charging station that one would put in their home if they had purchased an electric vehicle, and I've heard different information on this anecdotally, but maybe you can help us here, Alexandra. But um, how mu- if you purchase an electric vehicle in 2021 and you have the, the charging station installed there in your garage or in the front of your house or what have you, uh, how much extra does uh, do you see on your electricity bill? How much of a load does this add to your household uh, electricity consumption? Well, that's a that's a very specific question. Um, I wish I could give you a, a number, but a, of course it will vary depending on the. Uh, it will vary depending on you know how much you use your electric vehicle, of course, and, and how large is your electric vehicle. The larger your vehicle is, the more energy will use per kilometer. 
Um, so I, it's really hard to provide an accurate answer. Um, I think what is important to, to just recognize is the use phase, so you know, using an electric vehicle uh, is right now cheaper than using a conventional vehicle based mm-hmm. on gasoline or diesel. So I cannot give you a practical number, um, but what I can tell you is for the vast majority of Canada, it is cheaper to use your electric vehicle on a per kilometer basis than to use um, a gasoline vehicle. And even if you account for electricity that you need to, to pay. So the numbers are important, definitely. And I think there's tools out there that actually the government of Canada has developed some tools to quantify those. Um, but, you know, overall, I think the key point is this one. It's cheaper to use an electric vehicle. And that's, uh, I think, we're largely due to, uh, obviously, fuel charges, but also vehicle maintenance, as I understand, is a lot less on exactly. EV. Exactly. Yeah, cheaper man- maintenance for electric vehicles. Um, so ev- everything comes down to the price, you know, the capital cost of buying mm-hmm. an electric vehicle. And, and right now in Canada, um, there are some national subsidies, but they're not large. If you live in Quebec, if you live in British Columbia, you, you have larger subsidies. Uh, we had very large subsidies in Ontario a couple of years ago. And, and when we had them, we actually had uh, one of the highest um, electric vehicle penetration in Canada. Um, and then from one year to another, when they, they, they remo- removed it, we lost all those new sales because it was too expensive. So every, everything comes down to making those electric vehicles cheaper. And of course, on the long term, it will, it will basically be a result of more production, better battery technologies. Um, and on the very short term, it's a matter of subsidies um, or tax rebates or there's many economic incentives that governments can 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 play with but it really has to come from the, the you know the top down it really has to come from an agenda uh, pushed by the government with you know economic uh, power and, and 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 that will work so uh, in 2021 uh, the biggest challenge not necessarily distance or time to charge, but uh, just, again, the cost of an electric vehicle to, to purchase outright at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, it also a case-by-case case issue. Uh, I mean, um, if you live in, um, in, you know, if you live further, if you live far away from a city, um, and then, you know, you don't have the infrastructure and you need to actually travel a lot per week, the, the charging aspect is definitely important. So, um, I think there is, you know, multiple, there's different speeds in terms of electric vehicle deployment. Like we shouldn't aim for everybody uh, with an electric vehicle tomorrow. Uh, I mm. think cities right now should be the priority because if you live in a city, if you live in the suburb, um, there is very, it's very unlikely you'll have an electric uh, driving range issue. Um, unless, you know, if for the weekend you go to your cottage, which is hundreds of kilometers Way and and either you find another way to do it or either you do what a lot of a lot of people are doing right now, which may sound counterproductive, but maybe in the long term that's that's the solution. They actually own a second vehicle, so they actually you know keep their conventional vehicles and then they 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 buy a new electric vehicle as 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 their main vehicle. But I mean we can see all the equity issues associated with that because you know of course a lot of maintenance insurance prices um, and just buying two vehicles it's you know, not everybody can afford it. So. Once again, we go back to this issue of, of costs. Um, there's no easy way. And, and uh, the good news is we don't need everybody to buy an EV tomorrow. So uh, even though it's quite urgent to solve those uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, reductions and targets, but uh, I think 
in the years ahead, we'll, we'll see very large improvement. I'm quite optimistic. Um, but ultimately, that's also not the only solution, uh, because if you can take the bus or take your bike, if you live in the city, this is you don't need an electric vehicle. You can actually just take your bus. And for the environment and for yourself, for your health, also, it's way better. So um, uh, we saw uh, President Joe Biden in the United States uh, doing a burnout with uh, an electric uh, uh, pickup truck. How important yeah. <laughs> is it to get these into other vehicles? I mean, I think the Ford F-150 is still one of the biggest vehicle sellers in, in Canada, certainly in the province of Quebec. Um, how important is it to get these into everything across the board? Um, I'm quite have mixed feelings about it, uh, about this. Um, so from one side, and I, th- I think we saw the example last year. I don't know if you heard about the Hummer EV. Uh, they they developed this uh, mm. electric vehicle model of the Hummer. Uh, I mean, honestly, you know, if you would have to, if you would have to drive a Hummer. Uh, of course, it's better to drive a EV, but uh, you know, don't pretend that you're doing any environmental choices when you drive a Hummer. Uh, a Hummer EV is just a bad environmental choice. So. You know, it's fine if you're okay with that, but I feel it's sort of a greenwashing uh, solution in that sense because a, a large vehicle that's a, like a Hummer or even an F-150 uh, consumes a lot of a- energy whatsoever. Uh, so even if you electrify the powertrain, it's a little bit more efficient, but you still use a lot of energy. Um, but on the other side, we need that in order to make uh, electric vehicles uh, sexy, right? We need that mm. in order to convince people that wow, electric vehicle revolution is on the way. And, and so we need that for public awareness. And so it doesn't mean that people will need to buy those vehicles, but, you know, by, we've been, I feel that we are so much, um, we are seeing vehicles everywhere and vehicle advertisement, et cetera. And, and the fact that now we can talk about electric vehicle advertisement, I think is, is on the right uh Trunk. Uh, it's 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 in the right direction. But Alexander yeah. Malovinov has been with us, PhD candidate with the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering at the University of Toronto, talking about electric vehicles and how far they have come, and even even wireless charging somewhere down the road. Fascinating discussion, <laughs> Alexander. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. Have a nice day, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Coming up on Friday tomorrow, uh, the Tragically Hip will release some outtakes of that uh, Road Apples session. And, uh, and, and a lot of people are pretty excited about it. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music and is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing okay. Doing okay. It's uh, great to be talking about new music as opposed to someone who may have passed away who's great in rock and roll. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on this? I, I bet you there's a lot of people just chomping at the bit to hear these. Well, let's put it this way. Um, I've known about this album for a couple of months. Um, I had a chance to talk to the band last week. Uh, I'm going to be releasing something over the next couple of days with, uh, with this interview. So what do you know? What do you want to know about it? I, I pretty much have the scoop on. So let's start with this. Uh, they have been apart, uh, kind of went their own ways for a bit to, to mourn and, and get their heads together. Where is their head right now? What's the headspace like of this band? Well, to Rob Baker explained that they have come out of the fog. They they needed some time to get their heads together after after Gore died, and the fact that the band had come to an end after about thirty five years. So they needed space apart. They needed time to go off and do other things. There were some solo records. There were some other projects. Uh, but two years ago, 
something began to take shape. They discovered uh, via a New York Times story that there had been a fire at uh, Universal in mm. California. And the, they were worried that this vault fire had consumed all the master recordings that they had done with uh, Don Smith, producer Don Smith, to, rec- uh, to do the Road Apples album in New Orleans back in September of 1990. This put them on a quest, especially drummer Johnny Fay, to try and find these master tapes and then maybe do something with them. Because Don Smith was the kind of guy, he's really old school, and that whenever a band or an artist was in the studio, he would just keep the tapes running and ask the artist to dump out everything that they had to offer just in case there was some you know magic in there that they didn't recognize. So when they were recording this album, they had way more material than could fit on a single record. They recorded everything, mixed everything up, picked the 12 songs that they thought would be the best, and filed the other songs away. Now, those master tapes went missing. There was a fear that they were lost in this fire. Turns out that they were, they were not. But they were somewhere undetermined in unlabeled boxes that had some rough handwritten uh, notes and labels. That's what we're talking about. So eventually, they located these reels of two-inch tape and listened back to them and found uh, six songs from the Road Apple sessions that are really, really good, uh, but didn't make the album the first time around because one or two of them sounded a little too similar to what was already going to be on the record. Mm -hmm. So they had to make some really tough choices and say, no, we're not going to use these songs for Road Apples, maybe somewhere down the line, but then the tapes got lost and the tracks never appeared as, as B-sides or bonus tracks or anything like that. But now we have these, tra- these tracks. It's the Tragically Hip, September 1990. Uh, they are on their way to their peak. Road Apples would come out a year later. Uh, it's not Road Apples, I'm sorry. Uh, fully Completely would come out a year later, which probably is marks the high point of the Hip's career. Uh, they were full of life. They were full of energy. They were playing really, really strong. And, of course, Gord Downey was out front, being gored and what we have here are six tracks from that time that have been unreleased up until now a lot of tragically hit fans know the titles because they've never heard the songs except in live performance but these are actual recordings from those sessions and uh the album is called Sastadelphia <laughs> and features this material and i will tell you it is really 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 good but when you hear it for the first time, you're transported back to 1991 when the album came out. Gord Downey is right there in front of you, and you are completely enveloped in some very strong emotions because it's like he's still with us, and you just bought a brand new Tragically Hip album. Wow. I'm getting goosebumps just listening to this. So obviously you've heard these tracks. Is it like a Road Apples Volume two. In other words, you know, and I can I understand exactly what you're saying that some of the songs sound familiar and you want to get a nice a nice presentation there in your twelve songs of what the band can do. Is it like almost like listening to a volume two? It is. It it was done at the same time. They were in the same headspace, they were in the same studio with the same producer. Uh so yes, that's that's one way of, of, of looking at it. Uh except um what we've we've got here is like thirty one years between now and when these records this this was made so that we are able to distinguish and separate the new songs 
from what we have known on root apples for all these years. So it sounds pretty fresh, pretty exciting. How does a band feel about releasing this stuff now? They weren't sure uh, at the beginning because, you know, Johnny Faye came to them and said, I found the tapes. And uh, I don't know, do, do I want to press play? Do I want to look? Is it any good? I don't even remember some of these songs. Yeah. I played them for years. You know, what sort of memories are going to come back? What sort of emotions are going to come back? And to a man, the four remaining guys said, wow, this is really good. We, we were a pretty solid rock band back in those days. And Gord sounds great. So it is a, a bit weird for them because they're being transported back to those times. But at the same time, it was, I guess, justific- not justification, but validation of, of what they were like as, as young men in their upper 20s uh, back in those days and how good they were, how things were, were really, really, really coming together for them. Why only six songs? Because that's all they could find. Yeah. Now, there are other Road Apples tapes out there, but like I said, they were in unmarked boxes with handwritten labels. How can that happen, Alan? Because even back in 1990, you'd think they'd have more uh, handle on where things are, no? Yes and no. The problem was that this was Don Smith, the producer. Uh, he was the guy that basically had custody of these tapes. Uh, once the album was done, I guess they weren't cataloged properly, and they sort of disappeared for a while. At some point, they did, all the master tapes, did end up back in Toronto with Universal Music Canada. So they were never in the fire in, right. in Los Angeles. Um, and I asked them about that. You know, how do you lose something like this? And they kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, hey, it was gone. It was, you know, we were done with the album. We were moving on. We, you know, this was a, uh, we weren't into releasing, you know, seven-inch singles. We weren't into releasing EPs. So we really had no use for these songs at that moment. And we had to get out on the road and, 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 and work the record. Um, so someone somewhere, could be Don, who is no longer with us, uh, just was a little sloppy, maybe. But uh, one of them, some of the tapes were found, Johnny tells me, some of the tapes were found in an abandoned mine in Pennsylvania. Now, what they do with these abandoned mines, yeah. they, they, encase, they put concrete in them, and uh, it's very dry, very cool, and that's where they store things like old videotape and old recording tape. So, uh, you know, Frank Zappa has his own vault like that. Yeah. Uh, there's a vault, I think, in Arizona or New Mexico where all the Johnny Carson tapes are. I heard uh, that, yeah. Yeah, so some of the, some of these tapes were, were in, a, in a, an abandoned mine in, um, uh, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, there still are more out there. I just, we just don't know where they are. But if, if now that this is out... And I think the reaction, I mean, geez, you know, a tragically hip, a brand new tragically hip album released on the Friday of the first May long weekend in Canada. Are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. I mean, this, yeah. this is all that people are going to be listening to over the weekend. And uh, it, it's going to be a huge hit. And, and once it's a huge hit, they're going to go back and they're going to find more of these tapes. Uh, so do they have any do they have any idea, Alan, how much of this is lying around somewhere? Do they know a number or what they're looking for? How much is in the can? If you go online, there are at least 
65 documented, unreleased, tragically hip songs. Songs that they played live, but never seen to, never released. But they've only been available on bootlegs. For example, there's a song on Saskatoon called Crack My Spine Like a Whip, which they used for both opening sets and as part of Encores. Never got around to recording it. Uh, there's another song they called Montreal, which uh, they played live a lot. Never got around to recording or at least releasing it. So um, with 65 songs, there's obviously several albums with. Now, Paul Angwa seems to think that um, there's nothing left fully completely, which is the third album. But after that, there's probably a lot of stuff somewhere. Hmm. So the question is, you know, when do you release them? In what form do you release them? Uh, is it box sets? Is it uh, separate albums like this? Uh, you know, this is the Jimi Hendrix model. You know, Jimi Hendrix left a whole bunch of music behind. There's like 40 Jimi Hendrix albums released after he died. So it, it could end up being like that. It all depends. You know, they, you know, they got their old manager back, Jay Gold. Uh, he's got plans for preserving and extending the band's legacy. So you could bet that once this blows up, and it will, there'll be a demand for, for more. The question is, where are these songs, and can they be salvaged? So that's one project, trying to dig up all of this stuff and find it, and I'm sure they'll they'll spend lots of time doing that. Then what happens? Does this band uh, tour again? Do they find another lead singer? Have they talked about performing at all? The only performance we're going to see is on the June Awards, June the 6th. They're getting the Humanitarian Award, uh, and they will. Uh, the four guys will be there with Leslie Feist mm-hmm. taking the place of Gord, and that is the only thing that they plan to do. And they, they really... The only reason they're doing this for the Junos is because it's the 50th anniversary, it's because they're getting the Humanitarian Award, and because they think Gord would love the fact that his place would be taken by a woman. That was my next question, Alan. What is your first thought of that? I think it's great. Because how do you how do you ever replace Gord Downey? So this, to me, seems brilliant. Yeah, it does. I mean, a guy like... Uh, the only guy I could really see, you know, attempting to fill Gord's boots would be Hugh Dillon of the Headstones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you okay now we're all we're not about moving forward anymore we're all about creating well preserving and promoting a legacy mm-hmm. and the tragically hip was those five guys and anything that's not those five guys has to be considered very carefully and if you are going to do something it's got to be really offbeat kind of like what nirvana did in 2014 when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they had uh, Joan Jett, St. Vincent, Lord, and someone else. Oh, Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth rotate in for Kurt's place hmm. uh, when they perform. So this is kind of like the same sort of thing. Fascinating. Uh, there'll be lots to chat about come uh, after Friday. Uh, Alan Cross with us, host of the uh, ongoing history of new music, Tragically Hip, releasing outtakes from 1990s Road Apples, coming up this Friday tomorrow. Alan, uh, great story. Thanks so much for the time. And, oh, can you give us, uh, give, uh, when will your interview be out? Well, can you promote that at all? Uh, it'll start uh, showing up on radio across the country tomorrow. All right, Alan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You bet. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.